Good evening. It's very good to be here this evening. Thankful for your presence. Uh, hope you've had a good day. Uh, we've had a good assembly thus far. Speaking of the morning services, Gerald had some good things. And I hope that our study this evening is something that you'll find enjoyable. I hope it's something that will relate to you. And hopefully, I hope, and mostly, I hope that it's true. This evening, we're going to be talking about being active in our assemblies. And I'm not talking about being active as Rob, Rob Lindsay asked me this morning what we were talking about. And I told him we're going to be speaking about being active. And he said, oh, like waving our hands? I said, no, not like waving our hands. <laughs> but rather, we're going to be talking about the opposite of being here. The opposite of having a passive presence. Attitudes like these of I'm here, but I don't really need to sing. Or boy, that was a long prayer. <laughs> We've all been there, right? What about, I've heard this guy before. He's given this lesson before. I don't like his style. This isn't exactly what I need, etc. Or one that hits home to me in my younger years during extracurricular activities. I've got somewhere to be after the service. Or I have work I need to be doing in between services. And that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm planning right now instead of worshiping God. Rather, we need to be active in our assembly. We have a duty as Christians to partake in each one of these portions of our service. And this isn't an exclusive list that we're going to go through tonight of our services. There's other aspects of it, but these are the four foundational things that we want to look at. To get a context for our study, or, or rather so we can draw a metaphor, uh, if you would, take out a Bible and turn to Acts, the 27th chapter. Just to clarify, Acts the 27th chapter has nothing to do with the assemblies of the church. Where we're going to be picking up reading, we're actually going to be taking a glimpse at Paul's journey to Rome. If you'll remember, back in earlier chapters, Paul was arrested and he was working his way through the Roman court system from a local level up to what maybe a county level or a territory level. And now he's begun his journey to Rome Though back in Caesarea, Felix told him that, you know, I'd probably let you go, but you appealed to Caesar, so now you have to go to Rome. So that's where we're going to be in this story. Paul has gotten on a ship with the guards that are escorting him, and we're going to pick up there in verse 13 of Acts 27. The Bible says, And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosening thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Euryclidon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. When which they had taken up, they used helps, undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. And we, being exceedingly tossed with the tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither the sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. So we read here of a group of sailors and Paul that are on a boat, and they're sailing along, and the wind's behind them, the soft wind's behind them, and all of a sudden... A tempestuous wind or a storm, a hurricane, strikes their ship and it drives them a way that 
They don't really want to go, but they have no other choice. And we see that because of this storm, they were forced to lighten the ship. All the cargo that they were bringing on their journey, maybe the precious things, the water, they had to throw overboard. Their tackle, the things that they were going to use to catch their food and to fish with to make money, they had to throw overboard. And the Bible says that the storm was so bad that the sun and the stars never shone. It was that dark. This evening, I want to make the analogy of a hurricane being complacency in the church. When complacency strikes a church, or whenever complacency strikes us as individuals within the church, it can cause things in our worship to God, in our assembly. Things like not being here. Right? We know that. We can look around. There's not as many people here this evening as there were this morning. And there'll be even less on Wednesday night, right? Things like being easily distracted in church. All of a sudden, that hangnail that's been bothering me for the last week is going to get dug out with my pocket knife because this guy's boring. Things distract us easier because we're not as interested in what's going on. And ultimately, it leads to insufficient worship. Worship that isn't edifying to God and that doesn't allow us to edify one another. Insufficient worship is something that the people of God have always struggled with. Back from Genesis all the way to our assembly tonight. Back in Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 through 8, we're going to read there. It says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those things that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you a favor? says the Lord of hosts. You see, the children of Israel were doing what God told them to do. They were following the regulations of the sacrifices. They were here, right? They, were, they had a songbook in their lap. But what were they doing? They weren't giving it their best effort. The food that they were offering, it was polluted. The animals, they were sick or blind. Rather than giving God their best, they were giving him their second best or even their worst so they didn't take away from what they could gain. And I think, or I know in my life, there's been times when I've struggled with that in, in general, but especially in the assemblies of the church. And so this evening, that's what we're going to look at. How did Paul and these sailors combat the trials? As you skip down to verse 29 of chapter 27, it says, "...and fearing that we might run on the rocks..." They let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So we're going to draw the analogy this evening of our ship being Northwest Church of Christ, and we're going to look at prayer as an anchor of our worship, singing, teaching, and communion, or the Lord's Supper. And we're going to go through each one of these individually, and we're going to talk about, in some instances, the leader and the congregation, and in other instances, the different parts of these foundational principles. So to start off, we're going to look at prayer. How do we approach a congregational prayer? Think about communicating with very important people. If you want to talk to the President of the United States, you don't pick up the phone 
and call Donald Trump and tell him what you're feeling, <laughs> right? We work through delegates or representatives that then take our concerns or whatever the system is, but we don't have a direct link to the person that's in control. With prayer, we do. <laughs> we can go straight to the Creator anytime, anywhere. But specifically, in the assembly, we have a great opportunity. In the latter part of James 5 and verse 16, it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of one righteous person has great power. What do you think the power of 200 righteous people has or 300 righteous people has? You see, we have a great ability to get God's ear and to ask him for different favors and blessings that we need. Congregational prayer is something that's a commandment, but it's something that's a privilege. So what's our goal of corporate or together prayer? Whenever we all come together and pray, what are some of the things that we can pray about? Here's some examples I pulled uh, out of the book of Acts. We can pray for wisdom. In Acts 1, the apostles and other Christians were gathered together to decide who was going to be the new, the new apostle, and they prayed about it. Acts 12 and verse 5, Peter was in prison. And what did the church do? They prayed for him. They prayed for his persecution. Acts 13 and verse 3, I believe it was Apollos and another evangelist were getting ready to leave and the church prayed for him. And they tried to bless their journey. There's a lot of different things that we have the ability to express to God and concerns when we have them that we can pray about and that we can pray about together. So what about the leader of prayer? Leading prayer is a very serious role. It's not something that uh, if you want to be very effective at, you just do once every three months, right? Prayer is something we have to practice. I realize we can't always practice in front of 300 people, but we can pray at home. We're commanded to pray individually. We can volunteer to pray in public places or at work or whenever we're with a group of Christians to get us more comfortable talking with God in a group mindset. Prayer is something that, that makes us or requires us to have thought. How many times do we hear, God, guard, and direct us? <laughs> forgive us our sins as we forgive those. And they're not bad things, these Church of Christ catchphrases or whatever you want to call them. They're good things and they have good meaning. But are we just reciting these things? Or is it things that we're thinking about? Things that we actually mean? We should strive for a prayer that's understandable, one that is relatable, and one that's honest from our heart. A prayer that we shouldn't strive for is one that is long, one that's fancy. Who can use the biggest words? Who can describe God in the best way? Again, I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong way to do things, but I just want you to think about some of these things. As we get into our habit of saying prayers, we use the same words, we use the same phrases. Think about some of these things as you lead your prayers, and let's improve our, prayer, our praying. Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Remember, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. As we pray and as we submit 
these requests and supplications to God, we have the Holy Spirit that is interpreting to God what we actually need. So the congregation or the participator in the prayer, a lot of times the person praying will say something like, join me or pray with me. And, and that's something that I guess didn't really register with me, but we're, we're all participating in the prayer. Our minds are linked together and we're praying up to God as one body. In the past, I found myself becoming very distracted in prayer. We've got one person talking, and we've got a lot of people that are expected to be quiet and listen and participate in the prayer. What are some things that we can do to help us stay focused during prayer so that God will hear our prayer? What about repeating the words in our head? This is something that I do occasionally if I'm finding it hard to pay attention to what the person praying is saying. Repeat what he's saying. If you're finding yourself daydreaming, think about people that are sick whenever we talk about or whenever we're praying for sick people. You know, there's no way that we could take the minds of 300 people and all the people that we know, and from those people, all the people that are sick, put them on a list and go down the list and pray. Rather, we usually make a general prayer. During that time is a good time to think about those people that are sick that you know and know that as we pray together, those are sent up to God on all of our behalves. And remember, the Spirit intercedes for you as well. So make an effort to stay focused on your conversations with God and let's avoid distractions during prayer. The next thing we want to look at is our singing. We're not going to dive real deep into this tonight, but these verses and other verses talk about our singing being a cappella. And the one thing I want to say about that is whenever we choose not to sing, whenever we choose not to participate, that's the best excuse for instrumental music. When we have bad congregational singing due to a lack of participation, that's the greatest excuse to bring an instrument in. So think about that. What's the purpose of our singing? Hebrews 10 and verse 24 says, Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So whenever we're together, our purpose, number one, is to glorify God, but it's also to encourage and to edify. And that's what I want to focus on tonight with our singing We have to encourage one another when we're together. And a really good way to do that is singing. So how can we sing to the best of our ability? Well, if you're leading a song, lead, right? A lot of times, we get up here and we start a song and that's it. You know, at our church, our elders have decided that we have song leaders that lead songs. That's not something that you read about in the Bible necessarily, but rather that's a judgment that they have made. And if we're going to have song leaders, then we need to allow these men to lead the songs. Some things to keep in mind while leading a song. Pitch. I understand that God doesn't care how our singing sounds and that pitch is not important. But when we think about encouraging and edifying one another, 
the sound that our music makes is important, or that our singing makes is important. Does that mean if we can't pitch a song, we can't lead a song? That's not what it means. We all have our own abilities, and, and we all can do what we can to the best of our ability. But there's ways that we can work to improve on pitching songs, right? When we're driving down the car, or driving down the road in our car, a lot of us listen to the radio. A lot of us listen to the talk show. We listen to country music, whatever it is. Maybe turn it off. Practice singing. Practice some of these songs. Get more comfortable with your voice. Work. Improve your singing. Improve your leading. The next thing, keep everyone together. Believe it or not, and I hate to say this, it's not my job to be a slave driver up here pulling the congregation along or poking you with a cattle prod trying to get you to speed up. I may want you to, but at the end of the day, the purpose of our singing is to encourage and to edify. And if we're glaring at people and snapping at them, we're probably not doing much encouraging and edifying. So remember that. I'm not saying that something's right or something's wrong, but think about that. And don't worry, the congregation lecture's coming in a second. <laughs> lead appropriate songs. You know, if we're going to lead a song right before we partake in communion, let's make sure that it relates to that. We wouldn't get up on a Sunday morning for the invitation song and lead, Oh, why not tonight? Because it doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> we don't want you to come forward tonight. We want you to come forward right now. Don't wait till, well, don't wait till tonight. Think about that. Think about your song selection. I'm not saying every song has a purpose and needs to be led at a specific time. But as you choose songs and as you think about adding benefit and adding edification to our services, think about that. Lead appropriate verses. First and last, right? First, second, and fourth. There's a lot of good second verses and third verses and other verses that we don't sing that are really good. And I would encourage you, as you lead songs, explore some of those other verses. Explore some of the other uh, things that we don't always do with our singing. There's, there's verses that we've never sang that have very powerful words. Think about that. And lastly, be happy. And probably the better way to put this is have your emotions, uh, use your emotions appropriately with the song. You know, if we're singing, if the skies above you are gray, you... I mean, that's a happy song, right? We want to be happy. It makes sense to smile. It makes sense to have a little pep in our, in our song. But what if we're singing, when I survey the wondrous cross? Would it make sense for me to be up here, when I survey? Probably not. That's a somber song. That's a song where we want our emotions to be more collected because we're singing about the, crucifix the crucifixion of Jesus. Again, just some things to think about. Remember, at the end of the day, God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So the singer, the congregation, sing. <laughs> Obviously, right? Sing. And we think that that's an easy principle, yet we look around us, and 60% of the congregation singing, and 40% is doing nothing. Sing, guys. We've got a great opportunity to worship God to edify one another, to make really joyful noises to the Lord. Sing. Engage with the leader. Follow the leader. Eye contact is very important. 
It doesn't matter how many times we sing, it is well with my soul. There's a, there's a 90% chance that 90% of the congregation is going to look down at the songbook for 90% of the time. <laughs> We've sang the song 50 times in the past year, right? We know the song. So why are we looking at the songbook? Because we're used to it. And it's not bad to look at a songbook. It's not wrong to look at a songbook. But think about that. If you're up here leading a song and you want to look at people, we want to engage with one another. We want to edify each other. Let's make eye contact. Let's engage. Follow the leader. Some leaders like to sing songs faster than you like. Some like to lead songs slower than you like. We've elected to have a song leader. He's leading the song. Remember that. Within limits, he may choose to lead a song faster, or he may choose to lead a song slower. Let's do that together. Do that together as we strive to edify and worship the Lord. Do it with the best of our ability. I was talking with Mitch last week. Mitch said, you know, there in... Paul wrote to the Corinthians that if it makes an uncertain sound, it should be silent. And that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> he was joking, obviously. But that's what we get, our, we get on our mind, that if we're not some choral professional singer, that we need to not sing, or that we need to sing soft, or that we need to, guys, sing. And sing with the best of your ability. God knows the ability that he's given you. He knows if you can sing. He knows if you can't. And he expects you to sing to the best of your ability. And lastly, be happy. As we talked about, express the, express the appropriate emotions as we, as we sing. <clears throat> so some things to think about. Visitors observe our mentality towards singing. It's, it's the first impression that we get, right? We start with the opening song. A visitor walks in, he looks around, you're not singing, why should he sing? Do we actually believe what we're singing? Do we believe that singing is glorifying God and that it's edifying to our brethren? Are we practicing what we're preaching? <laughs> Members observe your mentality towards singing. As we look around and as we observe the congregation as we sit in the pews we notice when people sing and it, it either encourages us or it discourages us be an encourager not a discourager I guess one thing that has, has been on my mind in the recent months is kids and raising kids and, and I was thinking about this if your kids sing like you do What's the church going to be like in 15 years? Are we going to have good singing? Are we going to have people that fill these pews up and that sing to the Lord and do it to the best of their ability, whether they can carry a tune in a bucket or not? Or are we going to have a bunch of people that sit in the pews and look down and then look up and is this over yet? Are we on to the next thing? Think about that. It's, it's something that uh, I guess is very impactful to me and probably to a lot of people in the congregation at this point, but something I was thinking about. And most importantly, God observes your mentality towards singing. As we noted, God gave you your ability. God knows what you're capable of. 
I don't know what you're capable of. The elders don't know what you're capable of. But God knows. And God expects you to do your best. The next thing we're going to look at is our teaching service. So the preacher or the teacher, the first thing and hopefully the most obvious thing to us is that it's got to be true. What we are trying to teach has to be true. It has to be from God's Word. The latter part of 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Rightly handling the Word of Truth. You know, to rightly handle the Word of Truth, for one, could mean when we read it and interpret it, we apply it to our lives. It could mean whenever we read it, we read it in the right context. But in, in the way we're looking at it tonight, it means that whenever we have the Bible, we need to make sure what we're teaching what we are teaching is true and that we're handling the Bible right. You know, the Bible is the most powerful book that's ever been written. And there's a lot of people that have gained a lot of power misusing the Bible and applying things from the Bible in a distorted or twisted way to gain what they want for themselves. And in part, I think that's why James tells us that not many of us should become teachers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I think it was as Uncle Ben in Spider-Man said, with great power comes great responsibility. Whenever we have the Bible, whenever we have the power of God's Word, we have a responsibility as teachers to make sure that we are handling it in the proper way. Preaching something that takes a lot of effort. We can't all be some of these larger-than-life preachers, I think of Truman Teal or Pat Mann and Marlon Cole, we hear these stories of them walking up and putting a sticky note with a verse on the podium and then just going at us for 40 minutes, right? And at the end, we're all crying. And we, can't, we can't all do that. It takes effort. It takes a lot of time to be able to preach. And as you get older, I guess, it seems like it gets easier because... It seems like a lot of the older men are some of our better teachers. They're better at utilizing their time. They can do it in maybe a shorter amount of time. But studying, practicing, it's very important whenever we go to do a lesson. I would encourage you, whenever you put together a lesson, practice it. After you're done putting it all together, come up to the church, stand right here and practice it. Or stand in your living room and preach it to your wife. Because she'll tell you the truth. <laughs> Practice. Another thing. Learn to be comfortable in front of people. I know that we don't all have the opportunity to be preachers and get up and preach two or three times a week. But we all have the opportunity to be in front of people as we want to be. At work, take a leadership role. Make a presentation. Be a leader. Talk in front of people. It'll make you more comfortable in front of people so that you can make yourself more comfortable here. First Corinthians 3 and verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It's very important to remember that no matter how eloquent, how charismatic, how good we can be, how good our lesson is, all the verses we have to back up our point, at the end of the day, it's God that gives the increase. Remember that. If you teach publicly, it's your job to make sure the things you teach are true, relatable, and applicable. It probably wouldn't make very much sense for me to go over 
to the Santa Fe house at 10 a.m. this Thursday and talk about raising kids, <laughs> right? They've moved on past that point in their life. Does that, not, does that mean it's not true? No, if I talk, bring some things out in Ephesians, we'll talk about Proverbs and read Scripture. They're good things, but they're not really applicable to 85-year-old men and women that haven't raised kids in 40 years. Again, not something that's right or wrong, just something to think about. On another hand, it wouldn't make sense for me, really, to get up here and teach you how to raise your kids because I've never raised a kid. I can read what the Bible says about raising kids. I, again, I can go to those same verses, and it may make perfect sense to me, but at the end of the day, I'm probably not going to be the most effective preacher on that subject because I don't have the experience. Not right or wrong, just something to think about. So as the listener, or as the congregation, goes without saying, right? Pay attention. And it can be hard. <laughs> it can be really hard sometimes. But pay attention. Something that I found that really helps me is writing stuff down. When I was in high school and before that, I didn't write anything down. Oh, I can remember I can't remember anything. I have to write everything down. And maybe it would help you to write something down. At the end of the day, we're here to learn. We want to learn. There's a lot of men that are going to stand here and preach words of life. And they're going to do it effectively. And they're going to do it in the truth of God's Word. And we have a great advantage if we will write those things down or if we will, whatever you want to do to remember those things and take them home and study them. Acts 17, verse 11. Now these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Bereans, I think. The first thing I notice about them is that they received it with eagerness. I wonder, you think the Bereans were lounged back in the pew with their arms back? And I, I picture them as being on the edge of their seat. They got their pen and paper out going, let me have it. What you got? Secondly, what they did get, they took home. They didn't have the Bible like we have, but they had the Old Testament. They said, okay, are these things that these apostles are preaching to us, can we line them up with what's going on in the Old Testament that we do know? And I realize we have hindsight now, and we can see the New Testament and the Old Testament. So, and we can still go back and compare those things, but the principle is take what you learn here, whatever nuggets of information you can get, take them home and study them. A 30-minute lesson is not going to give you everything you need to know about a given subject. Write some of the things down and take them home. <clears throat> the last thing that we want to look at this evening is our communion service. So the Lord's Supper, most of us know it's a memorial service. We're thinking back to Christ's death. We understand, Lyle read it this morning, Acts 20, verse 7, that we partake of, it, partake of it on the first day of the week. But what I want to talk about is what do you think about while eating and while drinking? Does it even matter what we think about? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29 says, For anybody who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It does matter. In fact, it really matters, <laughs> as 1 Corinthians tells us. 
So the bread. As we come to the bread, what does that mean? Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, the institution of the Lord's Supper, says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. What is significant about Christ's body? Well, for one, his physical body was from the lineage of Abraham. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis of I'm going to make your family great, I'm going to make from your family a great nation, and then from that, all nations of the earth will be blessed? Jesus' physical body was important. It is important because that's what gives us as Gentiles access to Jesus. Jesus' body was perfect. He never sinned. I was visiting with a friend the other day and we were talking about how whenever temptation strikes us, a lot of times we go into this cloud of thought and, oh, what are we going to do and all these decisions. And at the end of the day, you either do it or you don't. <laughs> you're either going to sin or you're not going to sin. And Jesus always said no. He never sinned. He never forfeited to Satan. And lastly, not exclusively though, his body was murdered. He was killed. The perfect Son of God was killed, his physical body tortured for us. What about the fruit of the vine? Verse 28 of chapter 26 says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood established the new covenant. It was the fulfillment of the old law to the new Christian era. And it was for all nations, as we talked about through the promise. Through Jesus' lineage and through his blood, it's available for all nations, for all people. And it has the power to cleanse. You know, these people were familiar with, the apostles in which he was instituting this Lord's Supper to, were familiar with the Jewish laws or the Mosaical law. They knew what it was like to kill an animal, have blood. We don't know what that is. But we can still understand that the blood of those bulls and the blood of those goats, it rolled those sins forward. It didn't have the power to do away with them. Those animals weren't perfect. But then we come to the cross and we have Jesus, this spotless, perfect Son of God who spills His blood. And it's the blood that can actually cleanse us. The blood that can wash away any sin. It also represents the covenant that we made whenever we were baptized. Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Christ's blood is, represent, is representative of the water that washed our sins away, of the covenant that we have with Christ. <clears throat> So as we eat, remember the sacrifice of Christ's body. Remember the significance of his physical body and of his uh, blood. As we drink, remember the promise or the covenant that you made whenever you endeavored on this walk with Christ. Think back to that. Use it as a time of self-examination. Are you upholding your end of the deal? <clears throat> so we've looked at these four parts of the assembly. I hope that you've enjoyed what we've studied. I hope that you're able to take something uh, and apply it as we worship together in the future.
At the end of the day, this comes down to doing your best. And I can remember in my, you know, five, ten years ago, whenever I was in high school, I always go back to high school. Those were my dark years. <laughs> not doing my best at school, not doing my best at work, not doing my best as a friend, you name it, I probably wasn't doing my best. And that bled over into my Christian life. And it bled over into my worship to God. You see, maybe you're better at it than me, but I can't compartmentalize my effort. If I'm going to do good, I better do it in life. I can't just pick and choose where I want to do it. I can't compartmentalize it like that. And I want to encourage you tonight, everything you do, have purpose. Have an intent for everything you do. When you wake up in the morning, have a goal. And put forth the effort to achieve that goal. Whenever you wake up on Monday morning, go to work, go to school, and do your best. When you come to worship on Sunday morning, be here in the seat and be ready to go and do your best. Sunday night, do your best. Wednesday night, do your best. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So I close the night by asking you a question. Are you doing your best? We don't want to close this evening without offering an invitation. If there's one that's been sufficiently taught and would like to be baptized, or if there's one uh, that would like the prayers of the church, uh, we could offer one, one or either of those, if you would, come as we stand and sing.